0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you to our praise team. You guys are awesome. And, uh, oh, there you go. (laughs) Um, Y'all don't know, first service, like, if it could go wrong, it went wrong. Like, computer stuff went out, uh, cruises, instruments, the stuff was messing up. Nothing that they were doing, but it was just like, everything Eli's vehicle broke down and he couldn't make it the first (laughs) but I tell you what they, they did a great job of keeping things together and the amazing thing is that you know you still people out here didn't know but there was worship that was taking place and and I hope you came today and no matter what happens no matter if I mess up or anybody but that we can keep our focus on God and And I feel like we're getting our traction back. I feel like people are wanting to come back to church and be there in person. Are you feeling that way? You're feeling like that in life itself that, hey, I want to get back to doing the things that I was doing before. Um, How many of you would say that you love the freedom that you have to be able to worship God as you see fit? How many of you would say that that's, that's an important thing for you? Um, I think all of us would feel that way. Now, how would you feel if somebody suddenly came and said, Well, that, that freedom really isn't very important, so I'm going to take that away from you. How would you feel about that? Would you like that? Would you stand up and speak out against that? I, I think most of you would. I mean, most, of, most people would probably be willing to fight for that freedom. But on a spiritual level, would we fight just as hard to stay free in Christ? What I mean is that we we might fight for the physical freedom to come into a worship area and worship God. But are we fighting just as hard internally, spiritually, to be free in Christ? I read a story about a guy who went to free some young ladies out of uh, sexual slavery. He was a New York Times reporter named Nicholas Kristof, and he chose two Cambodian prostitutes. And he decided he was going to attempt to buy them from their brothel owner. He selected these two young women because they were there against their will. They were also willing to tell their story, and they actually wanted to leave this life. So the first woman, Shrey Neth, was a fairly simple transaction. He paid the brothel owner $150. He got a receipt, and he took the girl. Shrey Mom, who was the other girl, her situation proved to be a little bit more difficult. The brothel owner demanded more money for her. And so he writes, after some grumpy negotiation, the owner accepted $203 as the price for Shreemam's freedom. But then Shreemam told me that she had pawned her cell phone and needed $55 to get it back. And he said, forget about your cell phone. We've got to get out of here. Trey Mom started crying. I told her that she had to choose her cell phone or her freedom. And she ran back into the building, ran to her tiny room, and locked the door behind her. With her sobbing in her room and refusing to be freed until she got her cell phone, the other prostitutes, those who were her closest friends, began pleading with her to be reasonable. Even the owner of the brothel begged her, grab this chance while you can. But there she was, hysterically refusing to leave. Free mom only stopped crying when Kristoff agreed to buy back the cell phone too. And then she asked for her pawned jewelry to be a part of the deal. <laughs> wow, can you imagine? I mean, that's a crazy story to us. This girl is being offered freedom from this horrible, horrendous life and she's willing to give it up only if she can get that cell phone. In other words, she's willing to give up on her freedom so she can have her cell phone and some jewelry. That's just craziness. How could someone who is enduring slavery make such a terrible choice? And yet sometimes we make the same choice. Though Christ has set us free, we're hanging on to the slavery to sin. We're hanging on to death. How often we choose to live in slavery rather than in the newness of life. Now Jesus makes us an offer, but many times we refuse it. Because there's something in the world that we want more. In our Core 52 lesson this week, we read about the great sacrifice God made to win our freedom. And we're reminded of the story of other slaves who suffered and whose freedom came at a terrible cost. And the big idea of this message today is this, that the suffering of Jesus can free us from the slavery of sin. But we must accept His offer. And that's the point. Jesus offers this to everyone, but only those who accept it can receive it. Our memory verse this week came from Isaiah 53. It is a messianic prophecy written by Isaiah, who was basically telling us that there was much more to the Messiah story Then, some guy coming and restoring the kingdom of David. This is the story of a suffering Savior. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, Isaiah was prophesying about the coming Messiah, having to pay the penalty of our sins. But early in Israel's history, God had revealed this idea of atonement. Moses, the lawgiver, had revealed God's law to his people, and in that law, the sacrifices that would be required to make atonement for the people. The idea of animal sacrifice is pretty much foreign to us. I mean, we, we've not lived that kind of uh, culture where that was uh, common. But it sprang from the concept that there is a price to pay for sin. Blood means life. To take a life and shed the blood of an innocent animal for one's own sins seems a little harsh. Doesn't that seem harsh to you? But that was the point. It was a constant reminder of just how costly sin is. Even before God gave Moses the law, the idea was instilled in the hearts of the Jewish people during their dramatic escape out of Egypt. Now, you might remember the story how uh, the Jewish people moved into the land of Egypt While Joseph was in a position of power and influence. Joseph had been sold earlier by his brothers into slavery. But God had blessed Joseph. And eventually Joseph rose to this position of being second in control of Egypt only to Pharaoh. When a famine struck the region, Joseph was in the perfect position to help his family survive. And they would end up moving to Egypt and raising their families and their flocks there. In the years since they moved to Egypt, the Israelites had been blessed tremendously. They had been fruitful. They had multiplied. They had become, you know, fairly wealthy. But after Joseph died and a new pharaoh came to power, this good relationship between the Israelites and the Egyptians became a thing of the past. We look in Exodus chapter 1, and we see what happened. Pharaoh said to his people, Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, or they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. So we get this picture that the Israelites were enslaved at Nothing that they do, had done to deserve this. They were just enslaved by those who were in power. And they suffered under the weight of that slavery. And what we realize is the cost of slavery was excruciating. I mean, slavery meant suffering. And they suffered terribly. They suffered the lack of freedom. I mean, it was demeaning, it was depressing. The work that the Egyptians forced on them was evil in motive and cruel in nature. And just as I said, under the previous administration, the Israelites had royal permission to live in the land and to work it. But here, this new king of Egypt, since that their numbers were a threat to his national security, and thus he decided to deal shrewdly with them. Now, we don't know whether or not the Israelites were a genuine threat to national security in Egypt. But the fact that Pharaoh even thought that or was afraid that they could be a threat was enough to cause them great suffering. The Egyptians would place the Israelites under bondage in some very harsh working conditions. And they would pass laws that they thought, might prevent the Israelites from continuing to multiply one of those laws, basically creating a situation where any male children could be aborted. And so, these Egyptian taskmasters worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with hard service. And as a result, the Israelites were in misery and suffering and a broken spirit, Uh, you know, it's just a terrible situation, and the people were desperate. After years of captivity, the people cried out to God for help, and God heard their cry, and God answered their cry. And now we see the price of freedom was extraordinary. In order for God to get His people out of Egypt, a price had to be paid. The Egyptians would learn the price they had to pay for disobeying God. They would suffer greatly before Pharaoh would let God's people go. We read in the Old Testament account in Exodus about nine plagues that came. God turned the water to blood. He sent millions of frogs. Some of y'all would have been done on that one, right? Uh, He sent swarms of lice and gnats and Flies and livestock died from diseases and people had boils all over their bodies and terrifying hailstorms storms came through and locusts covered the ground and filled the houses and darkness covered the land for three days. But none of these were enough to tell Pharaoh, look, you got to let these people go. So finally, God sent the tenth plague. And it was the worst of all. The firstborn males throughout the land would die. Now this was a response to the Egyptian law that required the midwives to kill all of the baby boys born to the Israelites. Pharaoh had ordered those midwives to kill those baby boys as soon as they were born. Now this is an example of reaping what you sowed. Finally, after the death of his own firstborn son, Pharaoh let God's people go. But then he changed his mind again, and he sent his army out to destroy them. And as you may remember, the Red Sea opened, and the Israelites walked across on dry ground. And as the Egyptian army tried to chase them, the waters came back and swallowed them up. How many people had to die before Pharaoh would finally let God's people go. Here we see the price of the Israelites' freedom. Untold thousands of people would suffer and die. Now later on, as the Israelites would form their own nation, if you will, they would learn the price for sin. The price for freedom from sin we might even think was greater than their own freedom from Egypt. The price for the atonement of, for sin over the years was the blood of millions of innocent animals. The blood of these lambs. And you might remember as they escaped Egypt that night, that the lambs would be killed and their blood put on the doorposts and mantles of their homes. Anyone inside one of those homes would be free. They would not have to worry about their firstborn sons dying. Anyone not in those homes certainly suffered that fate. The law made clear that blood would have to be shed for the atonement to occur. In Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Again, blood equals life. Without blood, life is drained from the body. And so the idea that God wanted His people to understand was that sin and death are serious. Sin is very serious to God. It isn't a joke to God. It isn't a matter of fun and game. And through the law, God taught His people how serious sin is. But He also showed compassion. He made a way that they could offer a substitute to atone for their sin. God set up the sacrificial system through the law that required the shedding of blood. In Hebrews 9, we read, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the blood of an innocent lamb could be offered. The lamb did nothing wrong. The lamb died because its owner had sinned. Does that seem fair? No. But this too revealed the terrible cost, and the seriousness of sin. Imagine having to take your family pet and killing your family pet to pay for your own sin. Some of you would say, well, they can kill me. They're not going to kill my pet. I I mean, we love our pets so much. But a payment had to be made. Someone always has to pay. Have you figured that out in life yet? And the hidden gem of Isaiah 53 is that Jesus is the price that was paid. Jesus is the Lamb. 700 years before Jesus was born of a virgin or died on a cross, Isaiah made that prophecy. Jesus was the object of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53. But no one would know that for over 700 years. Isaiah saw that someone was coming who would change everything. Someone who would suffer. Someone who would take upon themselves the sins of everyone else. Isaiah lived under the Old Testament law. He lived under the sacrificial system. But he understood that Somehow, God was going to bring about change. God had something else in mind. All these Jews understood the terrible cost of sin because of the blood of all those animals that was on their hand. And friends, our sin is exactly the same. Sin has to be paid for. The price is either our death and eternal separation from God, or... It is Jesus' substitutionary atonement for us. Friends, the choice is yours. Slavery or freedom? Slavery or freedom? Sin or salvation? The choice is ours. The Israelites' slavery to the Egyptians could be said to be similar to our slavery to sin. The price of sin is tremendous. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. I mean, it can be fun while it lasts, but then there's a price to pay. And there's guilt and shame. Sin has alienated us from God. When we live for sin, we don't care about our relationship with God. But then, when the consequences of our sin comes, Then we call out to God for help. you figured that out? I mean, that's what we all do. But God has plainly set down His law. Sin breaks our relationship with Him. We have to be free of our sin before we can truly have that relationship with Him. And to gain freedom from sin, a price has to be paid. It's a price that we cannot pay. I like the way Stephen Farrar writes it in his book, Finishing Strong. He writes, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. I think that's very true. Because the promise of sin is just, hey, let's go have some fun. You know, this makes me feel better for the moment. But there's always a price to pay. In Romans 6 23, we read about the price. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the debt that we owe for our sin, for our disobedience to God, is our eternal separation from Him. And we have built that debt up over a lifetime. And it is way too much to pay. I can't take back my sin. I can't go back in time and change the words that I've said that I regret and I am ashamed of. I cannot go back in time and make a different choice than the one that I made. That now as I look back on it, I know, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. My sin is ever before me, just as David wrote. His sin was ever before him. It's like a a huge landfill in my soul that I have no ability to clean up. How many of you have been to a landfill? Anybody been to a landfill? Don't you just love the odor of a landfill? You just drive in, roll your windows down, mm, sniff it all in. Then you just want to go jump on that pile and roll around in it, don't you? No. Because it is nasty. It stinks. And Yet, that's what sin is. Some may ask, why can't God just forgive the debt of sin? I mean, if our Creator was truly generous, couldn't He just move on without repayment? Live and let live? Well, here's the problem. Someone always eats the cost of sin. As a simple example, let's say your neighbor's car crashes into your fence, destroys your fence. You come home, see, see your fence in a shambles, and you go to your neighbor and you say, don't worry about the fence, all is forgiven. Well, you can forgive your neighbor, which means your neighbor isn't going to have to pay the bill. But that doesn't fix the damage It means you are going to eat the cost. Now, now let's think about a more complex situation. How many of you remember when the economy crashed with the housing crisis? Anybody remember? I mean, I know we had a year of COVID, and that's sort of taken away our focus. But even before that, these uh, banking practices that were shoddy and these fat cat executives who were had in their pockets, and these, this corporate corruption threw a sledgehammer into the global economy. Now imagine Jesus is instilled in the aftermath as the new CEO of this massive corporation that had been guilty for the crisis. The old CEO is out the door, probably with bigger pockets, right? A new boss is in town. Jesus is personally innocent. He didn't do anything to cause the problem. He wasn't behind the wheel when the ship steered into the rocks. But there's still this huge debt. The Bank of America owed $17 billion on its own. Think about that. Someone has to pay the cost. Now, here's what actually happened, and you will remember. In the aftermath of all of that, the banks were deemed by our government to be too big to fail, And so the government forgave their debt, covering the most expensive bailout in human history. Now, though the banking industry had caused massive damage, the debt was forgiven. But did the debt go away? Okay, that's a question. Okay, Did the debt go away? No. Someone else covered it. In this case, who was it that covered the debt that the banks put us in? We did. You did. Taxpayers. The American people. Someone always eats the cost. Who's going to eventually pay for the COVID bailout? We are. We're now over $28 trillion in debt. I remember when we were $3 trillion in debt and people were panicking. Who's going to pay for all of that? Well, you might get a check from the government. You might be all excited. I got a check from the government. Man, I'm going to go live it up today. But one day down the road, the American taxpayer is going to have to pay that debt. Or it's going to be on our children or our grandchildren or their children. Think about that. Or we will be bankrupt. That is the truth. Now, friends, at the cross, God was eating the cost of our sin. Why can't God just forgive the debt? This this is what was happening at the cross. God is justly forgiving the debt by personally covering the cost. So I misspoke earlier when I said the White House gave Wall Street the biggest, most expensive bailout in human history. Actually, the most expensive bailout was when the father established his son as the new CEO of this corrupt corporation called Humanity, Inc. And together in the power of their spirit, they took upon themselves the most outrageous debt forgiveness plan in the world has ever known. In his book, Searching for Christmas, Pastor Arthur J.D. Greer writes, I remember a Muslim asking me when I lived in Southeast Asia, why would God need somebody to die in order to forgive our sin? He said, if you sinned against me and I wanted to forgive you, I wouldn't make you kill your dog before I forgave you. I I would why would God require some kind of sacrifice to forgive? And so JD Grey responded in this way. Choosing to forgive somebody means that you are agreeing to absorb the cost of the injustice of what they've done. Imagine you stole my car and wrecked it. You don't have insurance and or the money to pay for it. What are my choices? I could make you pay. I could haul you before a judge and request a court-mandated payment plan. If you were foolish enough to steal my $1.5 million Ferrari, which he says I don't really actually have, uh, you might never be able to pay it off. And And you'd always be in my debt. But I have another choice. I could forgive you. What am I choosing to do if I say I forgive you? I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong. I'll have to pay the price of having the car fixed. You have no debt to pay. Not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. And not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance even though you deserve the opposite. This is always how forgiveness works. It comes at a cost. If you forgive someone, you bear the cost rather than insisting that the wrongdoer does. And that's what Jesus, the mighty God, was doing when he came to earth and lived as a man and died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. This, my friends, is the atonement of God. He offers to free you of your debt. He offers to free you from your slavery to sin. He offers to put it all on the shoulders of His own Son, Jesus Christ. But you have to choose to accept that. You see, the offer is made. It's there but you have to take it. Remember in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. God loves you and wants you to be saved. He wants you to be in relationship with Him. No matter how high your pile of sin has gotten, He wants to wipe it clean and give you a fresh start. God sent Jesus into the world not to crush us, not to condemn us, but to save us. And friends, that's important for us as a church to remember. As we deal with people who are lost or struggling with sin, are we more interested in condemning them to hell, or are we more interested in throwing out a lifeline to save them? Are we more interested in extending grace to them like we've received, or are we more interested in looking down our nose and thinking we're better than them when we're actually not? We may have to make people aware of their sin while at the same time humbly acknowledging our own sin. Until people realize they are sinners, they have no need for a Savior. Doesn't that make sense? If I don't need a Savior, why am I going to choose one? I can do it on my own. And that's what many people think. I read this interesting analogy. Some of you might be off-put by this, but I think it's interesting enough for you to hear it. This guy owned a carpet cleaning business. And he promoted this to the public that he could remove pet urine odors from people's homes. How many of y'all have pets? Anybody have pets? Okay. We have two dogs. I'm going to say that we do everything we can to keep our house urine odor-free. Y'all know what I'm saying. Because if you walk into a house full of pets and you smell, oh, it's like, I got to get out of here. It's a terrible... Odor and a terrible thought that, you know, all of this is around. So, to show his potential customers their need for the service, he would go and take them into a room, turn all the lights out, and then he had this black light that he would turn on. And the blight, black light caused all of the urine crystals to glow brightly. To the horror of the homeowner, every drop and dribble could be seen, not only on the carpet but also on the walls and the drapes and the furniture and even the lampshades. How in the world? Lampshades. One owner begged him to shut off the light. I can't bear to see anymore. I don't care what it costs. Please clean it up. And another woman said, I'll never be comfortable in my home again. Some of y'all would say, oh, I don't even want him to bring the black light. But here's the thing. The offense was there all the time. But it was invisible until the right light exposed it. It would have been cruel to show these customers the extent of their problem and then say, well, too bad for you, and walk away. He said, I brought the light so they might desperately want my cleaning services. And in the same way, God shines the light of His commandments, His Word, not just to make us feel guilty and then leave us that way. He has a cleaning service to offer salvation through Jesus Christ. And so the choice is yours. You, you could hire the cleaner to do the work or say, Man, I, I, you know just go. I, I don't want you here. Or you could choose to have your home clean. And you can hang on to your sin. You can let it keep piling up. You can build up a mountain of sin. You can live with the guilt and the shame. You can lie and the lust and the hate and the prejudice and the selfish ambition and greed. And it'll just keep piling up, piling up, stinking up your life, messing up your life. Your distance from God will get greater and greater and greater and greater. But friend, once you accept God's offer, it can be gone, and you can be free of it in a moment. He's already paid the price. All that He's waiting on is you. Now, for me, and for anyone else here who's already accepted that offer, what should come from that? There should be a feeling of gratitude. I mean of deep gratitude. Gratitude. We should want to worship Him every day of our life. Serve Him and love Him because no one else could do what He's done for you. Remember that young girl I mentioned at the beginning of the message? She was willing to stay in a horrible life. She was living in just in order to hang on to a cell phone. And we think that's insane, and it is. But friend, let me tell you this. It is more insane to live your life without Jesus. It truly is. He made the sacrifice so that he could free you from this slavery to sin and guilt and shame. But you have to accept that offer. And I pray that you will. Father, thank you for paying the price for our sin. Thank you for loving us so much that You substituted Jesus, your one and only Son, to take the punishment for my sin and our sin. He paid the price that we owed. We can never pay you back for this, Father, but what what you ask us to do, what you call us to do, is to accept His sacrifice and live our life in service to Him. So, Father, we ask your Spirit to lead us to submission to awaken us to your will, to use us to help those we influence to accept that gift as well, or at least be aware of the offer. We can't make people accept it, but we can help them understand why it's important. And Father, for all of us who have already come into that relationship, we just give you all the praise and all the glory. With such gratitude and humble hearts. In Jesus' name.